Recorded live and from back into the left. No, no, your other left. Now a little more, now four. Perfect. It's Transformation Thursday. I'm Penny Sterling and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Amy Stevens and my pronouns are she, her as well. Well, as of Saturday, September 12th, there have been 5,411 confirmed cases of COVID-19 here in Monroe County. One of the most well-known of those cases was Ted O'Brien. Ted is a former state senator in the 55th State Senate District, whose 67-day hospital stay included several weeks on a ventilator in induced coma. His notoriety lent a very real face to this pandemic, and the story of his recovery is ongoing. Today, we'll be talking to Ted and his wife, Sue, about this shared ordeal. And we'll be right back with Ted and Sue O'Brien right after the traditional music swell and fade out. Let's talk about change, Amy. Okay, let me see. It looks like I've got three quarters, a nickel, a Canadian loonie, and a few British tenors from when I was in London because I'm an international comedian. No, not that change. Change is in transformation. The topic of Transformation Thursday. Oh, yeah, that. Well, we're doing this podcast to highlight how much things change and how quickly they do it in society today. Everything changes, and change isn't good or bad. It just is. The more we realize that change is just the natural progression of things, the better off we'll be. Now, let's talk about change. Didn't we just do that? No, no, not the last one. The first one. The coins. Money. About how people can give us some of theirs so that we can continue talking about ours. Are you just trying to get people to go to our Patreon page to support this podcast so that we can continue our exploration of what it means to live in a rapidly changing world? Because although this is a labor of love, we do have expenses, and by going to TransformationThursday.com, they can help ensure that we can continue to be bringing this fun and insightful commentary on the world today, plus get exclusive patrons-only content. Um, if I say yes, can we get on to our next segment? Oh, God, I hope so. Okay, then. TransformationThursday.com. Also, can you break a 20 for me? Sure. I can get that to you in euros. Okay, now you're just showing off. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. I'm Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Penny Sterling, and my pronouns are she, her as well. Every spring for the past eight years, I have been a volunteer with the Nazareth College's Department of Physical Therapy. For eight Fridays of spring, I get studied, poked, and prodded by groups of PT students under the watchful eyes of several members of the staff. This past March, we met once before everything shut down because of the pandemic. The professor who was overseeing the group I was working with was Sue O'Brien who I did not know at the time was married to Ted O'Brien until I heard about their ordeal on social media. That ordeal was covered extensively by the local media, including Ted's release from the hospital in May. And since I never miss an opportunity to exploit a relationship for personal gain, I asked her if she and Ted would appear on our podcast, where we're going to hear about Ted's progress and the difficulties of recovering from this infection, both physically as well as mentally and emotionally. Ted and Sue, welcome to Transformation Thursday. So glad to be here. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, we're, I'm very glad you said yes to this. So let's start out from the beginning. Well, the first thing I would like to, it's like the backstory, because, you know, I'm a storyteller. I always want backstory. Uh, and this is mostly for Ted. When did you first uh, start noticing the symptoms of COVID? And how fast did you get from that to uh, being on a ventilator in the hospital? Well, initially, and this was the very early, early stages of COVID, 
And you can, remembering back to that time in early March, uh, I guess I first showed symptoms somewhere on the 13th or 14th of March. March 14th. And, um, at, but unlike what was generally understood, I didn't have a fever. And fever was one of the lead indicators of COVID-19. So I talked to my primary care doctor who said, well, why don't we test you for some other kind of flu variant? And, uh, and that test came back negative for other flu. That very night, however, getting up and trying to get to the bathroom, I passed out. Um, and, uh, and Sue uh, called 911 and I was taken to Rochester Regional, Rochester General Hospital. Um, there, they did test me for COVID and it came back positive. But initially, the thought was that I could kind of ride it out at home. And so I quarantined in a separate bedroom uh, for three or four days. And, uh, but my breathing got much more labored and much more difficult. <clears throat> um, Sue sent a neighbor out to the local drugstore to get a, a little oximeter, a little finger clamp that, um, that you wear to your, test your oxygen levels. And my oxygen levels continued to decrease in a way that ultimately uh, caused alarm bells to go off for Sue. And she took me back to the hospital just to put a little end on this part of the story, I remember Sue driving me to the hospital. I remember walking into the lobby and being seated in a wheelchair and they knew that we were on our way. And that's the last thing I remember until I woke up some 30 days later. Wow. <laughs> um, so as you're going through this, Sue, what's, what's going through your mind is this because you have your healthcare background? Yeah, it was... It was a benefit, but still, you, there's so much doubt, right? Because we didn't know how this thing was presenting. And so I was doing my searches. Um, you know, shouldn't people be getting better after five days was my big question, you know, because it had been six, seven days. Um, and it said, well, from the European studies, they were saying, well, it might not, you might not hit bottom until like day nine, day tw or 12. And I'm thinking, oh God, we won't be there until... Well, we never got there because, you know, on the ninth day, he was back in the hospital. And, um, you know, I was talking to my friend who's a physician. I was talking to another friend who's a physical therapist, you know, and, and you know, our neighbors had, because we were quarantined because he was sick. So we couldn't leave the house at all. And the county is calling us and saying, are you still home? And I'm like, yeah, we're home. And, you know, we have two daughters. And um, I was following the rules and we had great neighbors who did some things for us like that Paul Sox. And, um, you know, so it became really clear that he needed to go back to the hospital. It's scary. You know, I was checking on him every like half hour to 45 minutes and he's curled up in that bedroom. I was trying to be masked, but I already knew I had it. I could feel some symptoms that weren't normal. I figured I'd had it, but I wasn't saying anything to him. I had started posting and then I was reading the posts to him, but he was mostly sleeping and not eating and not drinking. And it was scary. And he was coughing. The cough had started late in that first week. And, you know, he just couldn't, he wasn't comfortable. He had a lot of aches and pains too. Um, so it was very worrisome. I was checking on him all the time to make sure he was okay. Um, wow. So you thought you were, you were, pretty as, as a medical professional and also it turns out you did have COVID. So it was Ted, then you. So mm -hmm. you were taking care of him and watching him deteriorate and knowing, or at least feeling that you had the same 
illness as as he did. That's got to be like uh, an emotional death sentence for a while. It must have been really tough on you. Well, that I knew I had it, but I still, you know, we were still working on the beliefs that everybody's disease is going to be different. And I'm a little bit younger than Ted. Um, at I that a, point, I'm a lot stronger than Ted. Well, we were both in really good shape at that point. We've both slacked off since then with the quarantining, but um, we we're both really in good shape at that point, both doing our sports and, you know, high intensity training. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't that sick yet. Um, it got a little bit worse, but not even close. Not mm-hmm. even close. I had a couple of days where I was down more than up, but I could eat. I could tend to the girls, make sure they were eating. Um, and, you know, life kind of continued, but he was already hospitalized by then. So how old are your daughters? Uh, at that point, they were 15 and 16. Okay. Relatively self-directed at that point, but yes. still, yes. that's a concern. Oh, and yeah. they, they were, they, neither of them were uh, tested no. positive for COVID? No, at that point, we didn't know anything about their status. Right. But you had to isolate, right? You were both isolated. Yeah, then I had to isolate myself from the girls. And I, you know, there was the whole dance, okay, I'm coming down to the kitchen. <laughs> Get out. You know, that kind of thing. Or clear the way, I'm coming down the stairs. Um, that kind of thing. But, you know, they're teenagers. They're mostly holed up in their rooms, too. Right. So being, so. Being, a, being a mom and also tending to a, a husband who is rapidly de- deteriorating must have been like just a, such a strain on you. The good thing was we were on spring break, so I wasn't working. Um, and then they gave us the extra week to get our ducks in a row to go back to school. So, you know, he's in the hospital and I was doing what I was supposed to be doing offline to try to go back to work, but you just didn't know how bad it was going to be. So we started classes um, and that the Monday, the 23rd, Monday, the 23rd of March, we started classes back up and it was that afternoon at 5 p.m. that I was called and told he had been intubated. So that was it. I, that's why you didn't see me. <laughs> it wasn't, I wasn't going to work after that. I think that only did the one I, I, you were there, then they, they canceled that off after that. So I don't think I would have seen you anyhow. Right. You're right. And so as you're going through this and you're researching and you're reading, you know, any thought in your head, because there's also this disease affects males different from females. So any of that going through your head as, you know, your approach to this, thinking about how you're going to manage this situation, especially related to the family? Um, you know, we were, we, it goes back to, as we were being informed by, you know, journalism and things like that and reading about it, we did check our respective risk, right? And him being in a 60 something year old male and me being a 50 something year old female, but we were healthy, right? We were counting on our health to sort of say, oh, we'll get the mild form. No problem. We'll skate through this. Um, we yeah, weren't I, gonna worry. We weren't that worried. We weren't that worried. I, I was in best physical fitness I'd been in decades. I'd in the previous two years I'd gone from 230 pounds to about 185 just by watching my diet and by being very um, religious about my about my exercise routines. And uh, so I was running. I was running a 5K about every other day, and I was alternating that with uh, work light weight work. 
and I was in pretty darn good shape. So I think our feeling for both of us was if we were to get it, we're talking about the flu, but probably not anything worse. And, and of course, for me, it ended up being very life-threatening. And I, I'm, we can talk about this, but I came very, very close to not making it through. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the one thing that was really clear as soon as he was hospitalized, because he'd only been hospitalized a couple of days before they intubated him, was that there was no stopping it, right? There's no treatment, right? There's no, there was nothing in March to try to help people as their uh, lungs weren't functioning anymore and they couldn't get breath in. Um, so, you know, it was a it was a roller coaster, only going down. Was, that was it. Yeah, and I remember watching, you know, the daily updates from Governor Cuomo, and he and he's saying, you know, the longer you are intubated the more likely you are not to come off of that, you know, you're not to come off the ventilator, excuse me. And so, you know, understanding that, you know, seeing the news, understanding where Ted was at that time, you know, and I'm watching social media, I'm watching the news and there's no news about Ted, you know, come, he's still at the hospital, still at RGH doing his thing. So, you know, how are you guys managing that mental game you know, be, you know, especially for you, Sue, because Ted's on the ventilator. So there's, you know, he's just breathing and, but you're going about your life, trying to recover, do your thing. So how are you managing this from a mental perspective with you and your family? Well, it wasn't, it's not a, when people are on vents with COVID, they're not comfortable. I'll get to that. But for me, because I had symptoms, the health department now became interested in me and they had to test me. So that forced me to call my physician, my personal physician, and, and she was talking to me about this whole situation. And she said, well, how are you doing? And she was speaking about my coping. And I said, I'm fine. I'm good. All is well. And then 20 minutes later, she kept me on the phone and she said, she convinced me that I needed to go on Xanax. And I did um, from the very beginning. And I, I swear that was the best thing. She was such a skilled physician to get me to go from no to yes in that phone call. And then I stayed on it until he came home um, because the, the uncertainty of wondering when or if your spouse will die was unbearable. And, and then, you know, nobody being able to tell you that he's doing better. You know, it was just, it was scary. It was constant fear. And keep in mind at this time, although I was in a coma, so in that sense, I did kind of have the easy role. I just had to lay there. But um, they put me in a, a coma so I could tolerate feeding tubes and, and the ventilator. Um, uh, but, you know, that ultimately led to great muscle atrophy. I was in a coma for a long time. But you're right in saying that they don't want you to be on a ventilator for too long. And my palliative care doctor ordered a tracheostomy that would uh, have me breathe from my neck and aid me in getting off the ventilator and recovering. At that time, Rochester General and, and, and major hospitals all around the country um, had different policies. Many big institutions in major cities around the, uh, around the nation were not doing tracheostomies um, on people with active COVID infections because of the potential risk to the surgical team. They're going to be asked, being asked to operate on the respiratory system of a person with an active COVID infection. And this is where, 
you know, there's a few things that helped save my life. One of them is this very courageous doctor who had just finished her residency in December, joined Rochester General in January, Dr. Xuan Liang. And Dr. Liang essentially volunteered to do the surgical procedure on me and, um, and her physician's assistant to assist. And they um, both had to then get permission of the hospital, including use of the Ebola suits that they had at the hospital. Um, but you're right, they'd like to do the tracheostomy in about 14 days. Normally. Normally. Um, mine was somewhat delayed and then further delayed as approvals were sought and protocols for, they've never done this on an active COVID patient before and they had to come up with protocols. How are we gonna do it to ensure safety? And it got to be day 20, which is pretty far into it. You uh, get so deconditioned that you may not be able to avoid a downward spiral at that point. Uh, but she, Dr. Liang did the surgery. She did it safely and fortunately successfully. And uh, they weaned me off sedation later that same day. So uh, yeah, it was really amazing that all the, uh, you know, we need to remember that this, the, the healthcare professionals were making this up as they go along. There's really yeah. nothing here involved with that. So yeah, that's that you were like a test subject, I guess, in a lot of ways. And I'm, I'm so glad. He was the first trach in Rochester. First trach, yes. And, you know, some other things that the hospital did were very helpful to me in being able to survive this bout with uh, a really serious COVID infection. Early, early on, they did a CAT scan on my body and determined I had a blood clot. And a lot of people think of COVID-19 as a respiratory illness because that's how it's transmitted. But it, it's really a circulatory problem that creates blood clots. And they, they determined that I had a blood clot early, early on in my admission and started me on blood thinner, which I think was really an important medical find and a medical response. And that's the one medication. <laughs> in fact, interestingly enough, I'm now on less medications than I was before I went into COVID. I'm only on a blood thinner and I'm no longer on like cholesterol and hypertension medications. Not that I'm recommending that as a way to treat yourself to go through COVID, but... Uh, <laughs> To lose weight. But um, I am still on a blood thinner. So they did that. The other thing they did is, of course, this was early, early on. And you may recall that the, the president was advocating something called hydrochloroquine as kind of a magic uh, answer. <laughs> and uh, the doctor- for, 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 our, for our listeners, uh, Sue just gave a big thumbs down when, when Ted said hydrochloroquine. <laughs> yes. And the, the doctors did try that. They tried to dose, didn't see any difference. And uh, quickly moved on to an anti-inflammatory, a steroid type. It's not exactly the, it's the one that's- a rheumatoid, rheumatoid arthritis drug. Yeah, not exactly the one that's most favored now, but it's in the kind of the same class. And once they started me on a course of this anti-inflammatory, um, that was also a, a critical medical decision that, to try to treat my, my condition. That's when he stopped getting worse. Right. So- and, um, so that was that was important. So you got you you both mentioned being in great physical health and high intensity interval training. Of course, what runs through my head at that point is CrossFit. Um, but along with that comes diet. You know, are you using paleo, keto, some kind of other diet that is low in sugar, low in? We were know, yes. because I was on a. I'd uh, my doctor had warned me about uh, about diabetes and. Um, and so I was on a very low carb diet. 
and that's not think, not not keto though. Not, not we didn't go that far. Right, but um, but that was most instrumental in my my losing a lot of weight that allowed me to exercise more freely too. I think I lost the weight more due to diet than than even the exercise, and then the exercise kind of got me in good physical shape. Well, it's going to say though, but do you think diets that are anti-inflammatory, you know, can be helpful as you're going through this experience if you do get infected with COVID, you know, because does that help with the medication part of it? I mean, is there any correlation there? I mean, even anecdotal from your observations. You know, you know that's hard to say. It, it is hard to say because, you know, we were definitely following a low carb diet before he got sick, before this all happened. But once he got home, 35 to 40 pounds under, we went high fat, high cal calorie to try to get him to gain his weight back because he came home. Um, I, the, only, the best way to describe it is like an Auschwitz victim. He was, you yeah. could see every piece of his bone. I was down pelvis. to 150 pounds. Yeah. Wow. 6'2", so 150 pounds. And there wasn't, was, I, I literally, I had no, no muscle, muscle tone. Mm -mm. Um, and, and we can talk about that. I, I will say that, you know, I was so weak initially that I couldn't lift my head off the pillow. Wow. And, um, and I, what I'd have during this night, I would sometimes, my head would roll off the pillow and then I couldn't get it back. Wow. And, uh, and so what the nurses did, I, and I will say that everybody at Rochester General was so awesome, just so good to me, but they would roll up towels and put them under each side of the pillow to kind of perform to kind of create a little crotch that my head could sit in at night a cradle a, a cradle <laughs> <laughs> crotch is cr or crotch however you know different strokes are different folks i've always right yeah this is a transgender show a lot of times so you know we don't we don't we don't pass judgments here. <laughs> no no you, you you guys do you so yeah. i want i want to talk about that we've talked about the pre we've talked about the during um, I, I actually have two questions. Number one, uh, Sue, how much contact, physical contact did you have with Ted during all this? Were you able to be in the room with him or was this all done via Zoom and telephone? Well, as you know, um, visitors are not allowed in hospitals and they're still not during for COVID. So I was not allowed to be in the hospital at all, even to take a peek. And I, and I work when, I, when I'm not teaching, I am per diem in the same hospital system. And I pulled every string I possibly could pull and nobody allowed me to go in. So, um, so it was a total of 68 days that I had never had, was never in his physical presence. Um, and that was hard. Um, so we didn't get to see him. And I say we, because he has a brother and a sister and it was always the three of us together every time we visited Ted virtually. So these were virtual visits. They started out by um, another physician willing to take a risk against his colleague's advice to go into Ted's room with his own cell phone. Um, and we, and we um, FaceTimed um, those first couple times. And, and then it morphed into, he was able to obtain a hospital um, iPad and uh, not use his own personal stuff. You know, and there's an important part of the story right here while we're talking about this, that, you know, in terms of things that saved my life, and obviously Dr. Liang and her willingness to do the um, tracheostomy. Are you going to tell the, yeah. the story of the visits? Right. Let's hold on that. 
just for a minute. <laughs> What do you mean? What do you mean? All of a sudden, Sue is taking editorial control of this yeah, podcast. I guess, I guess go ahead, so. go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, go so ahead. We're, no, why don't? Why oh. do you want to hold on that? What? What? There's something like you have like a. Preview. Well, because I, I feel like, um, I, I, I guess the only thing I want to add is that over, like a three week period, when he was at his most ill, I saw him five times for a total ten minutes. Mm. virtually virtually only right and 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 just seeing him right and we were talking you know the his brother his sister and myself and our the our our daughters and um but you know there that was it it was like 10 minutes total over three weeks and it was horrible so go ahead but it was so significant uh i believe for me and i believe this is that during this time period, I was having a persistent dream that I was in a house somewhere south of Rochester, not our own home, and it was all decorated for Christmas. And, um, and th- this persistent dream and being in this location, sometimes my, my brother and his family were there and some folks I didn't know but were visiting and whatnot. But it got to a point in my dream, I'm in this house and it's winter time, and I have a sense that there are other people in the house, but I can't see anyone else. And um, I, for some reason, I had restraints on my ankles and my and my wrists that, um, and I just, I got to be very, very hot. I was tired. I was exhausted. And I called out into the room thinking that there were other people in this house that I couldn't see and weren't responding, but I just said, I don't know if I can make it through. I don't think I can make it through the night. And right at this time in my dream, of course, um, it was winter and the ice had kind of glazed over the windows. And I heard what I thought was somebody chipping away at the ice on one of the windows. And then I distinctly heard my brother-in-law's voice saying, oh, he's in there. It's going to be okay. I can see him. In my dream, I had this sense of relief just rush over my entire body, just like relief that it's, oh, I'm going to be okay. I can, I can relax. I don't have to fight. And, um, and I think that was a feeling that was very critical to me. And here's really why I think kind of the amazing part of it comes is that after I was out of my coma and I understood that they were, that Dr. Herman, the palliative care doctor who took his own personal cell phone in initially, and they were communicating with me. And I asked, was David my, was my brother-in-law, was he on those calls? And Sue said, yeah, he was on there every single time. I said, I heard him. Wow. That's pretty amazing. And, you know, Dr. Herman's, you know, wonderful guy. And he was interviewed about this kind of episode by one of the TV stations or the paper. And he said, what I think is a remarkable thing. He said, sometimes we think it's all about fancy science that gets people well, but sometimes it's these intangible things. And, uh, he believes that this communication with family was important to my survival as well. Um, and as a result, Sue and I start, started a fund called the Ted and Sue O'Brien Patient, Patient Care, Care Connection, Connection Fund. Fund. <laughs> that just trips right off the tongue. <laughs> and, right. Um, and we raised over $40,000 for the Palliative Care Unit at Rochester General, which they're using to be able to enhance ways for families to talk to their loved ones in ICU 
um, because recognizing that this communication with family is so important, both for the people who don't have the illness that are home, and, but also, I believe, for the patient as well. And it's kind Absolutely. of a remarkable story. It was, it was, it was painful. You know, so my life became this um, routine of, I would call the hospital three times a day, 10 a.m., 5 p.m., 10 p.m. And I think the hardest thing, just to get updates, right? And the updates were never really all that different. Um, he would be on more oxygen, less pressure. It's all these settings of the, of the machines and I would make them explain it to me. And, but really what I was understanding was they were working so hard to keep him on the machine because they would say he's fighting the machine. He's fighting the machine. And I've talked to other COVID families and they've said the same thing. They say, my brother is fighting the machine. I'm like, I heard the same thing. You know, so it's really hard to keep these people on the machines. And that's why so many people don't survive. And I, all I could do after, after days and days of this three times a day information I was getting was picturing these respiratory therapists next to these ventilators in these patients' rooms, titrating the machines up and down to try to get the settings just right so they weren't overinflating and blowing up somebody's lungs because they can do that, uh, which is was, isn't advisable and just keeping the pressure low enough that they can keep them breathing. It is a fine, it is a fine tuning patient's critical commitment to their patient that I don't think is getting enough recognition. It is, it is most people who get to be as bad as Ted don't survive. Yeah. And that's even today. That's even today. You know, I'd react to that by saying this. Sometimes I, um, I would say kind of the poor Ted, you know, why do so many people not have symptoms and yet it hits me so hard. But by the same token, I look at for people that were in my circumstances, unfortunately, they don't have a very high success rate. And from that, I focus on that perspective is that I'm one of the lucky ones. I hit the lotto. I mean, I, I was able to pull through from a spot that most people don't. And um, in terms of the ravages of the COVID illness, I didn't realize this until I had a recent follow-up CAT scan just in the beginning of September, but I'd had a CAT scan in April and I didn't realize until seeing the comparison that they estimate that I had about 80% of my lungs damaged by what they called ground glass pneumonia, pretty descriptive term, but I only had 20% lung capacity. And uh, we can talk about the, uh, the September uh, results after we talk kind of about rehab and what I've been going through to get stronger again. Because um, there's some good news lying ahead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so as I'm sitting here listening to this and, I, and I'm thinking about everything going through, you know, fighting the machine, trying to get that pressure right. But, you know, and then Ted's intangible. So in those initial conversations on FaceTime, Ted's still on the machine, can't talk. So Ted's just hearing the voices. Or is right. he, is no, there... he's paralyzed and sedated. So, <laughs> yeah. so, but yet that his mind is that powerful yeah. and he can hear that in there. And so, like you said, you're hearing like, yeah, Rochester in March and early April was just dreadful this year. So, you know, the power of the mind is, and I think we get lost in this and I, you know, we're starting to see some, you know, Sue, your personal doctors bring this mind-body connection. Ted, you're talking about mind-body connection. Are the hospitals starting to see this and make these connections? 
I mean, how are you, how is this all getting tied together? Because yeah, it's, it seems to be a combination of both that's really worked for Ted and for you, Sue. I, I think certainly- They could do better. I think Dr. Herman really <laughs> recognizes the power of, you know, having your mind and your body working together to get somebody better. And, uh, and that's why, you know, we wanted to work with him to raise funds for this communication effort with patient family contacts, because they are, um, in my view now, extremely significant. And the mind can overcome a lot, um, and, and, I, and didn't in my case. Just hearing the voice of my family, again, in my dream, just caused a sensation that just flowed over my entire body. Of, I just able to relax for the first time and feel the sense of relief. And uh, I think that if, if I had to rank how I'm still here, Dr. Liang was a hero. I mean, as, as she has said, there was major institutions all over the country that weren't even willing to do this operation on an active COVID patient, and she was. And that's probably the single most important thing. But, but maybe not far behind was this being able to hear from my family who I hear them telling me I'm going to be okay. And, but again, um, you had a family that advocated for that. Right. Right. So I was the bug, the bee in, in everybody's bonnet saying, when can I see my husband? When can I see my husband? And we bumped into the right physician who was willing to make the extra effort. And it was extra effort to get into his room. And, you know, because they weren't, you know, like I said, I have a friend who's a physician in this hospital system and I couldn't get her to visit Ted because she's not directly involved in his care. I mean, that's how tightly clamped down they have the COVID patients. So they couldn't even, I couldn't even get a physician with privileges into his patient room when he was sick. And wow. I think it's, I, I have very strong opinions about this. I think families, I couldn't need, tell. <laughs> families need to know that they have a right to see their family member. Right. And, and despite the restrictions that have been put on, um, I think at this point in time, they're too restrictive um, because COVID families are one of the, are like the only families who can't get a visitor at all. And I'm, and I'm like, we know, and we know that in fact, I was with my friend today who said, you know, that they have not had a healthcare worker come down with contract COVID on the job in months. So why can't we have family at the bedside when somebody's critically ill? It doesn't make any sense to me because you gown and you glove and you mask and you do everything that you're supposed to do. Um, but I think, I think the hardest thing when somebody is critically ill, they need to have their family there and, um, and, and you need to be there too because you're the healthy one, right? And you're going to give them your strength. Um, by touch, by voice, um, you can help the, you know, and, and this is the, one of the things that kept annoying me, right? Because there's a whole um, group of people who rotate through your, your loved one's room, right? Throughout a 24 hour cycle, throughout a whole week. And they kept calling him Edward because that's his full name, Edward. Well, he's never been an Edward since they put it on his birth certificate. He's only ever been a Ted. And I kept having to remind or to, to correct people, please call him Ted. When you walk in the room and you talk to him, please call him Ted. He's a Ted. And, you know, I could have been there, you know, put it up on the wall and said, please call him Ted, <laughs> you know, 
but it was, there's just, it's those little things. Well, this, this is kind of indicative of healthcare in general, that they live and die by the bracelet and what's ever on there. You know, this is something that not only affects, you know, the care for Ted and everybody else, but this directly affects, you know, us in the transgender community. I don't want to get off the rails in there, but this is something where they're, you know, but I was last month when I was at the hospital in Mount Sinai in New York City, they had a preferred name down there. And so, you know, that's an important step mm -hmm. that even in somebody's case like Ted, who has a different name on his birth certificate, probably on your driver's license and your passport, whatever else, you know, that yeah. familiarity preferred name is going to be much more therapeutic than Edward. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and, it's, and it's also yeah. the, Good point. the Western medicine, like you're saying, treat the, treat the chart, not the patient. And also the, the the malpractice issue. I'm I'm thinking that they're probably doing that because it's safer for them uh, insurance-wise to not have people there as opposed to what's best for the patient. I had the opportunity. Um, so we had we had there were a lot of events that happened. So he was scheduled to be discharged to rehab, and the rehab uh, needed two COVID negative tests. Now he had been negative for probably close to a month. And they even did a test where they injected fluid down both lungs and sucked out the fluid and that came out negative. Called I mean, a lung wash. Yeah, <laughs> right. And, um, and so he was so negative, right? So they had to do two more tests. And the first test came back, came back negative. The second test, the day he was leaving, came back positive. And I, this was the only time- Which meant that I couldn't be accepted by the he couldn't receiving move to rehab. rehab center. He couldn't right? move to rehab. So I needed to have two in 24 he, hours. He had no symptoms. He had no, he was, he needed to go to rehab. Well, this test somehow comes back. I call it the rogue positive. <laughs> and, and I talk about F-bombs. I, I laid a few out on this poor physician's assistant that morning <laughs> because they were stopping his care. And this poor physician's assistant told me, well, we can't retest them according to the rules. We can't retest them for 72 hours. And I said, so now you're going to delay my husband's care for 72 hours because this test is wrong. You know this test is wrong. So anyway, yeah, long it, story it, short. It turns out that um, when they do, depending on the COVID test, but some of the COVID tests had changed can, and it, they can pick up um, the Dead. COVID virus, but they can't, the test can't distinguish between active and inactive infection. So the infection might have been already passed, but remnants of the virus still there in my in, in my nasal passages, and it picked up what was probably a, a dead virus. But but they had also changed the test, so the tests they were comparing to were different. They'd done it differently. I was I was livid. So and because I wanted to see my husband, it had been at that point 54 days that I had not seen him. And this is where patient advocacy comes in so importantly because. Yeah. Rather than listen to my wife continue on and on, they got a test done that day. <laughs> they did. And, but also uh, this Dr. Adam Herman, the, you know, we had developed this relationship with him as a family. And he said, okay, um, I am going to, and this is what he did. He brought Ted out of the hospital in a wheelchair because he was medically stable and ready for rehab, but for this test that is holding up the whole train. So yeah, he that, was, brought... that was day 54, and it was going to be the first day 
that I was able, on my trans, transmission of uh, transportation from the hospital to the rehab facility, I was going to be outside and I was going to greet my family for the first time yeah. in 54 days. Made it that, all oh my gosh. It was and, just this uh, huge like. And so all of a sudden happen. that just evaporated. And uh, Dr. Herman went to the CEO of the he hospital. To, he had to get permission. And I uh, said, look, he is from our facility's perspective, he is dischargeable. He can be discharged right now. We can take him out. The difficulty is going to be if they don't accept him at the new facility, we've got to get him back in. Well, no, no, no. You weren't leaving. You weren't leaving the hospital. They he weren't, was just they coming. They weren't actually discharged. But his right. argument to the CEO was he's dischargeable from our perspective. We he's can take him stable. out. Right. And um, to make sure. We can sure do this family visit outside of the hospital to play by the rules, right? They had to play by the rules. I couldn't go in. So they, he was going to bring Ted out and we could visit outside. And to make sure and that there was, and to make sure that there was no uh, problems with uh, readmitting, coming back into the hospital, leaving or going out, I, will, I was quite impressed by this. But Dr. Herman himself and the president of the hospital escorted me out to greet my family and then back in. Well, was it like I, that or was it more like, I'm, we're so tired of Sue, we got to get this guy the hell out of here. <laughs> well, well, patient advocacy is important. Well, we had already raised money for the hospital too. Yeah. So I think that had something <laughs> but, to do with you know, it. You know, I, I did ask Dr. Just um, to be really Dr. Kevin Casey is the CEO there, wonderful, and was very good to me. And I said, geez, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to do this. And he goes, you know what? This is really kind of celebratory. We haven't had an awful lot of success with patient care and people in your circumstance. And we need to celebrate too. And uh, so we went outside, I got to hug my wife and my children for the first time in two months. Mm -hmm. And um, and it was a celebration. It was just a really wonderful thing that they did for me. And I did go back to the hospital and mm -hmm. I think it was two, two days, more days, two more days. Then, they, and then the, the testing got cleared up and I, I did go to rehab. They re yeah. But um, mm -hmm. just to give you a sense for how debilitating this illness can be, is that the act, even at that point, and yeah. I'd been in the hospital for 54 days, the act of sitting up was making me nauseous, nauseous right? Ooh. And standing was very difficult and stuff. Um, so I, when, I, when they were transporting down, you see pictures of me going out to meet my family. I had a little pink bucket on my lap because I was that they sick. They were afraid he was going to throw up. I was afraid I was going to throw up again, yeah. And um, So he wasn't tolerating any kind of activity, including sitting in a wheelchair. Right. Even sitting up was very difficult for me. That and the fact that I'd been in one position for so many day after day after days that I started to have back pain in the small of my back. And sitting in a chair was not, not helping. I, I just couldn't get comfortable. But... Um, Fortunately, we persevered, and uh, I did slowly, slowly, slowly gain my strength to the point where I could. By the time I was discharged from the hospital, there were days where I could stand and I could walk from my bed to the hospital room door and back. And I can tell you, that was a great feeling of triumph at that point. I couldn't, I couldn't stand long enough at the sink to brush my teeth. I couldn't take a shower. Well, I didn't take any shower at the hospital and not until I got to rehab did I take my first shower and um, at rehab. Oh my gosh, how did that feel? Oh, I, you know, they, they did. I mean, the, the nurses were absolutely phenomenal to me and they had, you know, hoods that they could kind of wash their hair and they sponged bathed me and stuff. Um, but it's not the same as a shower. Oh. And I can tell you that when I was first at rehab, the act of getting undressed 
making my way to the shower and they had a, sh I had a shower chair to sit in and then lathering up and shampooing and then drying off and getting redressed and back into my bed was expend. That would be the energy that I had for an entire day. That's all yeah. I could do. Yeah. Was, was so I want to ask quick, cause there a big, big thing was made. You know, you're talking about the, 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 the people coming down to see you. There was also press all over the place and you know, I, they, you know, of course they were the following me, they were following. They were, yeah, well, you are so popular, Sue, even more well, than me. But it's because of him. But yeah, yeah. I, I struck <laughs> no, a nerve. That, I, that last part's not true. There's most parts of this community where I'm only now known as <laughs> Sue's husband. <laughs> okay, so that, I want to bring, going wonderful. back to that. I was just going to say, that's a wonderful turn of um, <laughs> the, the, the table there. It's yeah, art. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so, time to look good. Your, your wife is amazing. That's what I get <laughs> Well, that's 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 actually not bad. You are now officially a power couple, apparently, in Monroe <laughs> County. So, but the, a lot a big belly who was made about from the recovery process. You got up and you walked to the car and you sat down in the car. How much of how much of that was an act? How much of that was there were cameras? <laughs> I'm going to show off. Short. By the time I was discharged, this is now day sixty-eight. I could walk short distances, and one of the things that Sue was concerned about, and rightfully so was that my, you know, my bedroom was on the second floor of our house. I wanted to make sure that I could climb stairs. So really, literally just the day before I was discharged, and I moved my discharge up a couple of days because I was doing pretty well. I was able and to I walk- was, And I was done with him being in the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was able to walk a flight of stairs one time, uh, and I did that before, before discharge. So yeah. we were pretty confident that I'd be able to get upstairs. And then of course, every day you get stronger, a little stronger, a little stronger. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. So where did that's, what, that's an act. So, and um, so we ended up, um, we had a, our family over because that was the first time any extended family had seen Ted um, that mm -hmm. afternoon. And you, you rallied for about 45 minutes and then we and were the done. day of discharge. Yeah. We got home and the entire lawn was littered with lawn signs. Yeah. Uh, welcome home. And it was just, just wonderful. Just very, very, uh, this, the support from the community was, yeah. was just outstanding. And I'll tell you one little thing about weakness and, but the community support, I had literally hundreds of get well wishes. And, um, but the problem was I had say 400 get well cards. I had a little plastic knife that I'd taken from lunch and I would use it as a letter opener to open up the cards. But I would, when I was in the hospital, if I did about 10 cards that way, that's all I could do. I just couldn't open the envelopes. It was because I was so weak. Yeah. So I'd do about yeah. 10 a day. And I, I think I still have some unopened ones, I'm sorry to say. No. Well, yeah. you know, and I was, when I, when he, when he woke up and we were visiting, I could tell that he was quadruporetic. He had no head control. He couldn't raise his arms. He wasn't moving his legs. Like his whole body was, he was just, they took, in order to save him, they just had to take every bit of his muscle power. It was, it was yeah, shocking. I was completely was atrophied. When you looked at my legs and I've always had skinny legs, but they were literally bones and it looked to me like just empty baggies hanging on the bones. My, you know, I used to have, even though I had skinny legs, my calves from all the running and stuff were like really rock hard. I had no muscle tone at all. It was just limp skin hanging on bones is all I had left. Well, I think this is a pretty good place for us to jump off. Uh, Penny and I have discussed this. We're going to approach this in two interviews. So I want to thank 
Ted and Sue for discussing that hospital portion of the infection. But you know what? I think, Penny, we should bring this back next week and talk about the rehab portion. What do you think? I agree entirely with that. So we'll be right back after a really quick, uh, you know, begging for money with more Transformation Thursday. To financially support Transformation Thursday, go to TransformationThursday.com and that will bring you to our Patreon page. Once there, click on the Become a Patron button. You can also follow us online on Facebook. You can follow us by searching for Transformation Thursday Podcast. And please join our private Facebook group by searching Transformation Thursday on Facebook. On Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us at TransThursPod. To make sure you stay up to date with all the latest episodes, please subscribe to the Transformation Thursday Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google podcast or wherever you get your podcasts on apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star rating and a short review it's free and it does help get transformation thursday out to a larger audience finally transformation thursday is copyrighted material all rights reserved 2020 welcome back to transformation thursday my name is penny sterling and my pronouns are she her and I'm Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her as well. Wow, Penny, that is a fantastic wrap on part one of our interview with the O'Briens. They're amazing human beings, and what went, and what they went through was just on so many levels is just fascinating and interesting to me. You know, and you mentioned in there too that Ted is old news, and you know, we 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 you know, and I was doing some Google searches for that, and I saw the same thing that you did. But you know, those clips are like six seven minutes long and i'm so happy with the format of our show that we can really do this long form interview and really give this story the justice that it deserves because i think you're right we hear about the infection but that recovery we're not talking about as as a as a population and as a world society right now yeah, and you were mentioning before we started this that you that you that's something that I have not heard any place else that Ted talked about that is resonating very deeply with you. Yeah, since I am a graduate student and I'm in training to become a mental health counselor, one of the first things that we've been talking about, and you know, this is my second semester. So in my first semester, we talked a lot about um in one of my classes, the mind-body connection. And and Ted just emphasized that so eloquently from a patient perspective that even in his induced coma, he was having nightly dreams in March and April. It was still cold here. It was a brutal spring here to match the COVID-19 pandemic. And so for him to have that imagery of that sound of ice on the window and his brother chipping through and hearing his brother's voice, because at that point they were bringing in, you know, they were doing FaceTime videos with him that is powerful imagery and it is such a beautiful connection that we see um, when you know western medicine technology combines with mental health and what that did to sustain ted just is is an extreme testament to how important family and loved ones are in our recovery processes that it be from physical or mental illness yeah we are we are uh we are not solitary. None of us are islands. And we recover best when we know that we have something to come back to, that we have people out there who love us and care for us. And, and But not only, the, you know, and I've been working through this with, with, a, with a friend recently, and Ted echoes this too, that's a 
support doesn't need to be in person all the time. It can be knowing that there's a caring, loving person on the other side of that phone connection, on the other side of that internet connection, that's going to take the time and listen to you. And so I think that's, that's something that gets lost in this. And I think that's why we're seeing such an uptick in mental health um, appointments, especially now with the stigma being taken away when you can do this in the privacy of your own home. Yeah. And you were talking about that. The, the way that was being done was because a doctor was in there like holding his phone to Ted's ear so that Ted could hear their voices. And which talks about the, the frustrations that, you know, my takeaway about this was how much and how tireless Sue was with her advocacy to, to save her husband. I mean, she was a, she is a, a, a highly respected healthcare professional with a lot of clout in, in, the, in, in the medical facility and even had privileges at this hospital and she could not get in to see her husband and she couldn't even pull strings to get in, but that didn't stop her from battling for her husband on a daily basis. It was almost like, yeah, we're gonna kick him up because we're so sick of you, Sue, which I, <laughs> which, which, you know, and, and part of me understands that with this particular, uh, you know, people, it was, it was very fearful. It was, I, I hearkened to the first days of AIDS where everybody, as like extremely hands off because they don't know what's going on and only the few brave souls that will be able to do that and go against what the hospital wants to, to, to help out. But uh, it's, that's still there. Sue was talking about that as well, that that is still there. That sort of, uh, you know, you have to fight away, you have to fight against it and well, that she can do that is a, is a testament and also a learning experience for anybody else who's dealing with uh, that sort of healthcare profession in issues. I mean, realistically, I mean, the first known cases of COVID-19 were about a year ago at this point. So it's still, as far as diseases go, a relatively young thing that we're dealing with. So a lot of learning on the fly. Um, but also, you know, I'm no longer a volunteer firefighter, but, you know, when I was getting those emails, the, the number one danger is, you know, for the spread is the arrow, you know, that spittle, that spit, whatever you want, being aerosoled you know, mm -hmm. into the air. And so, you know, from a hospital perspective, I, I understand their hesitancy, but then, okay, we know what the dangers are. So let's develop the proper protocols to minimize that risk. And I think uh, it was either you or Sue mentioned this, that, you know, if we look at the testing for doctors and nurses right now around COVID-19, none of them are coming down with the disease because the, the use of PPE is so stringent and so yeah. methodical right now you know and i remember watching a video early on in there and i remember watching this guy doff his gloves after getting out of a covid19 patient's room and i'm like he did it wrong you know you know I, i'm like he did it wrong and right. this gentleman unfortunately ended up with covid19 i believe he recovered but you know the the donning and doffing of ppe is so important and so yeah. needs to be done very stringently we have discovered protocols that are effective and that's yep. important also important is the recovery part we talked all about the infection and actually getting out of the hospital his as, as his his um his journey was not over and we're going to talk more about that journey next week because it's so fascinating. We have plenty more with Sue and Ted O'Brien coming next week. I can't wait for it. Amy, it's been a great pleasure talking with you again today. And I love that we're getting back to this and we will see you all next week on Transformation Thursday. Good night, Amy. Good night, Penny.